Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, the first in our series of discussions with Washington's 2020 congressional candidates. Christine Reeves is formerly a representative from the 30th Legislative District, and she is running for Congress in Washington's 10th CD, a seat vacated by the retirement of Congressman Denny Heck. That is straight ahead, so stay with us. Christine Reeves is running for Congress in the 10th Congressional District, which includes Olympia, Puyallup, and parts of Tacoma. Previously, Reeves was the Regional Outreach Director for Senator Patty Murray, and she is currently the Director of Economic Development for the Military and Defense Sector for the Washington State Department of Commerce. In 2016, she also became the first African-American woman elected to the Washington State House in 18 years, representing the 30th Legislative District. She stepped down from that seat in December of last year. Christine Reeves, we are so glad that you could join us. Welcome. Oh, thanks so much, Stefan, for having me. And I really appreciate the opportunity to connect with our neighbors. I will just ask you before we begin how you and yours are holding up right now. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, As you can imagine, like a lot of families uh, right now all across this district and all across our state, you know, I'm the working mom of two young kids. I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old who have been home from school full-time for the last uh, two months or so. Uh, you know, we uh, obviously have lost access to our child care facility as we prioritize frontline workers, and rightly so. Um, but, you know, as we're all working to stay home and stay healthy, you know, my husband's a pilot for a major airline here in the region. And, you know, like a lot of families, we're having to readjust uh, what, uh, what it means uh, in this new reality, both financially and socially. And so, we're doing our best, but you know our our primary priority right now uh, as a, as a family is to keep our kids safe, to keep my elderly in laws safe, to make sure that our community is safe, and so focused on staying home, staying healthy, and as an economic developer, thinking about how we have a safe start. And in addition to all of that, you're also running a campaign, so I imagine that can be uh, challenging okay. in in completely different ways. You know, I think, uh, again, our job is to adapt uh, on a daily basis. And I think, uh, you know, this is uh, an opportunity to think differently uh, about how we connect with our neighbors in meaningful uh, and significant ways. And so, you know, up to the challenge, doing the work and, um, you know, talking to our neighbors. But I also think, you know, as we think about the systems that we have built over the last, you know, several decades, You know, Corona has really just shown a bright light on the darkest uh, parts of inequity in those systems and uh, really looking uh, to connect with our neighbors about how we address those inequities, whether it's in healthcare or education or in our economy, to make sure that we're putting people back at the center of our government, that we're putting people back at the center of our economy and uh, and fighting to make sure that everyday folks you know, have a sense of security moving forward. So many questions about everything that you just said. Uh, but I want to get your thoughts generally about, you know, how you see, how you would potentially see your role as a, a member of Congress uh, in D.C. from Washington. Uh, if you win, you will join what I think is just an exemplary dele- delegation of Democratic members of Congress. Uh, Congresswoman Jayapal is one of the leaders of the Progressive Caucus. She spearheads right. a ton of legislation. Of course, we have Adam Smith, who's the chair of Armed Services Committee. Uh, Denny Heck has been uh, instrumental with the DCCC. Susan Delbeni and Derek Kilmer are consensus builders. Where do you see yourself on that spectrum? What sort of leader do you anticipate being in D.C.? 
Yeah, thanks for that question, Stefan. I, you know, let me start by saying that I think I bring a very different perspective and I, I think an added voice to an already, to your point, tremendous delegation. As somebody who grew up the, the daughter of a single mom who struggled with substance use issues, you know, I spent the first 10 years of my life or so in and out of foster care. Uh, when my mom relapsed several years later at the age of 16, our family found ourselves homeless. Uh, and so I know what it feels like when it feels like the deck stacked against you. I know that it's leaders in Olympia and in DC who were making decisions about whether or not kids like me would have access to programs like Head Start or food stamps. And so I think I bring a perspective of what uh, it really means when we make strong and strategic investments in our social safety net uh, and what it means when we champion strong progressive and democratic priorities. And so I think where I find myself uh, adding to that conversation is bringing a lived experience, unlike you know, most of our members of Congress and most of, you know, Congress in general. I also think at the end of the day, I've got a proven track record of being able to do the work necessary to advance those progressive priorities uh, where voices at the table have been been missing, quite frankly. When I got elected to the state legislature in 2016, I was the first African-American woman elected uh, in 18 years, and I was the only woman with children under the age of five. And what that's helped us advance over the, the last couple of years is how we fight for accessible and affordable childcare for all working families, how we were able to advance uh, legislation focused on uh, healthy environments for all, which really meant how do we make sure that as we combat climate change, uh, that we're advancing environmental justice for communities of color, underserved communities and rural communities. Sure. And so I think where I add to our delegation uh, as a great team member uh, to that work is just bringing a different lived experience and a different perspective that, quite frankly, a lot of Americans are going through right now. Uh, and I look forward to being able to partner with the other members of our delegation. As you know, I'm a former Patty Marie staffer. Uh, I've been endorsed by Congressman Smith. So I think I've got the right relationships and the right um, experience to be able to hit the ground running and join a really strong team of folks to bring a new perspective to the work that we need to do to rebuild our country and our economy. Well, I will tell people that your personal story is incredible. And uh, I encourage people to check that out at your website. It's very, very inspirational. But just kind of circling back, do you see yourself as being a consensus builder? Are you someone who will spearhead legislation that supports all of the uh, progressive priorities that, that you mentioned? Yeah, I think, Stefan, I, I think absolutely. My track record shows that I am not only able to advance really progressive priorities like universal child care or environmental justice, but that I do it uh, by, you know, working both inside my own caucus and the Democratic Party, as well as, you know, working across the aisle to get things done. And I think, you know, now more than ever, that's the kind of leadership that we need in D.C. And I think it's why I'm uniquely suited uh, as the best candidate in this race to actually hit the ground running and do that work on behalf of families in our district. You received the endorsement of South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn. This is a very big deal. Uh, his endorsement arguably turned the presidential primary for Joe Biden. So uh, congrats on that. And I will ask you, what do you hope a national endorsement like that means to the constituents of the 10th congressional district? Well, I think, you know, all of the folks uh, in this campaign who have signed on to Team Reeves is really just a uh, signal to 
uh, folks both here in this Washington and back in D.C. that I am the candidate most closely aligned with uh, what working families are going through right now. I'm the candidate who has a, a proven track record of advancing progressive priorities on behalf of our communities and our kids and working families. Uh, and I'm the candidate who, quite frankly, has the best experience to be able to rebuild our country and our economy with working families uh, at the center of that. And I think whether it's Congressman Clyburn or Congressman Smith, whether it is the National Education Association and all of our teachers in this state and our educators, whether it's the Teamsters or the Laborers Union, uh, I think the validation uh, of all of the folks is that I I'm the right person uh, to serve the hardworking families of the South Puget Sound. I want to ask you a question about accountability, uh, because as you likely know, the people who listen to this show are very, very engaged. They're very active. Yeah. Uh, they worked extraordinarily hard in 2018 and really made the differences in, in races up and down the ballot, including with the blue wave, with uh, Dr. Kim yeah. Schreier's victory in the eighth. Um, I will just let you know, then you probably are aware of this, that they also apply a lot of pressure on their electeds with progressive issues. How uh, will you be responsible and accountable to them? That's a great question. And I think, as you can see, one, by my voting record, but uh, I think, two, you know, we actually had a, a similar issue come up in the legislature uh, while I served around um, public disclosure of records in, uh, in the legislature. And I was one of very few elected officials who voted to ensure that our public records were actually open uh, to the public and uh, make sure, again, that um, it is a form of accountability to ensure that our constituents, our neighbors, they have every right to know how their tax dollars are being spent and how I, as their elected official, uh, am doing that work on their behalf. And so I think that's one example of where uh, I am going to make sure that even if it's, uh, if it's not the popular vote at the time, making sure that we're fighting on behalf of our communities. It's, uh, you know, I, I have a philosophy which uh, kind of pervades all that I do. I have an open door and an open mind. My job is to make sure that you have access uh, to me and to the staff to make sure that your lived experience and your um, your opinions are being heard, uh, not just uh, heard, but I think listened to. And I tell folks, I'm not the subject matter expert in everything. Um, my job is to bring really smart folks. And I've actually met several from the Indivisible community who are doctors and educators who have spent their life doing the work that we need uh, to advance these important progressive priorities. And I look forward to continuing to get to partner with folks uh, in making sure that we're fighting for the right causes, that we're putting our kids and working families and our communities first, uh, and making sure that we're rebuilding an economy that works best for, uh, for average average everyday folks. So when you talk about, uh, you know, responsiveness to uh, members of uh, constituents, members of the community, will you meet one on one? Will you hold town halls when when such things are possible again? I mean, absolutely. So I'll tell you a couple of ways that I've done this uh, as a in just a track record perspective. So um, even before I got elected, we implemented what we call Coffee with Christine. And it really, at the time, in-person meetings, it meant that I would sit for several hours in a coffee shop and uh, anybody in the community, 
Democrat, Republican, Independent, Libertarian, anybody could come in. Um, it was open uh, seating, open arrangement, and you could come in and you could just talk to me about whatever was at the top of your mind. Uh, and quite frankly, it's where I got to learn some of the biggest issues that were facing folks that you know, didn't naturally touch me personally, but touched a lot of families and, and working folks in our community. And we got to turn around and then fight to solve those problems on their behalf. Uh, we hosted uh, town halls on a regular basis, both um, in during my legislative time and then during campaign seasons. We also uh, focused on making sure that we had constituent uh, walk-in hours while I was in the legislature. So when constituents would come in, um, regardless of kind of who was in front of them, uh, assuming it wasn't another constituent, they got given priority to come in and talk because I don't believe that you should have to constantly come to your government uh, to get support. Your government should be coming to you. Your elected officials should be coming to you. And so I look forward uh, as the next congresswoman in this district to continue to hold town halls, to continue to hold public forums, to continue to show up to the places I get invited to go, and to continue to host coffees with Christine because I think at the end of the day, that's how our neighbors get to build relationships um, directly with their elected officials and get to hold their elected officials accountable. That's the other thing I'll say is I tell folks, um, we aren't always going to agree 100% on everything, but my job is to be truthful and transparent uh, and to, have, to be open to the dialogue. Um, even when it's tough to be open to the dialogue because everybody has a lived experience. Everybody has uh, an opinion sure. that matters and deserves to be heard. I want to shift over and talk about the relief package that was rolled out by Speaker Pelosi on Wednesday. This is a $3 trillion coronavirus relief package. I know you haven't had much of a chance to look at it yet, but I want to get your take on a couple of things. Uh, among other things, it will contain about a trillion dollars for state and local governments. This has, of course, been something that uh, Republicans have pushed back on, particularly with the White House. Since you have been a state legislator, what role do you feel the federal government should be playing in helping out states? I mean, the states can't run a deficit, only the federal government can, right? So right. how do you view that dynamic? Yeah, that's a great question, Stefan, and I'll say you're spot on, right? As somebody who served in the legislature and had to work to make sure that we had a balanced budget on a four-year cycle, um, you know, I believe that uh, at the end of the day, we need the support of, of tax dollars that have gone to the federal system to come back to states, right? You have to remember, these aren't Donald Trump's dollars. These aren't Congress's dollars. These are your tax dollars. And uh, they were collected through uh, federal means. And so at the end of the day, I believe that every single state uh, has the right to go to the federal government and ask for that support and ask for that relief um, to make sure that our families on the ground who are most impacted, our kids who are being impacted, our communities, quite frankly, local and state government are being hit really hard. And quite frankly, they're the folks closest uh, to being able to provide relief in the community. And so making sure uh, that that support uh, is available is incredibly important. So just to be gonna... clear, you would be absolutely pushing for uh, those sorts of numbers in terms of funding for state and local governments if you were in Congress right now? I would absolutely be pushing for state and local resources. Okay. I also want to ask you about uh, joblessness, because as you know, the jobless rate is just at an astronomical uh, number right now nationally. And then here in, in Washington, there are 1.45 million unemployed. Uh, that is 38% of the workforce. It's just, it's just jaw-dropping. How do you see the federal government's role in keeping workers afloat and, and preventing mass layoffs? Well, I think, you know, we've got to stop, uh, but, you know, we've got to start by 
stopping Donald Trump from creating slush funds that hold no accountability, right? When he can divert 500, I think it's $500 million that, you know, folks can just use for their personal whatever. That's not how our tax dollars should be invested. That's not helping families or kids or or workers on the front lines. You know, two, I think we need to get back to, uh, you know, the president has some broad discretionary powers in the Defense Production Act that he has continued to fail to use fast enough to actually ramp up production uh, of testing, of, you know, PPE, protective equipment. Uh, we, you know, that's, that's a really big challenge uh, in my mind uh, for how we're protecting folks who are doing the work of, of trying to get our economy and keep it on track. I think third, you know, we continue to watch these stimulus packages roll out. And yet, as we dig deeper and deeper into them, you know, the last uh, CARES Act, we find that there are billions of dollars being diverted um, to publicly traded companies, to millionaires right. and billionaires. That's not, again, a good investment in my mind of taxpayers' money to actually make sure that people back here at home are able to put food on the table or keep a roof over their head. So for me, as a member of Congress, my primary concern is how we're making sure that folks can feed their families, that they can you know, afford to pay their rent every month, and make sure that at the end of the day, we're infusing uh, taxpayer money back into our economy to ensure that uh, you know working families are, are the priority. Well, so, so how uh, specifically would you do that? I mean, I think there's a couple different ways, and we're seeing some of that come out of our our progressive priorities. You know, obviously, Speaker Pelosi is advocating on behalf of, uh, you know, financial support directly to families. We're seeing that come out of um, Senator Harris. We're seeing, I mean, you know, Congresswoman Jayapal and others. But I think at the end of the day, it's about how we ensure that families are able to pay their bills every month directly. Um, And that can come in a couple different formats, whether that's ensuring that, I mean, I've talked to so many small business owners who have, you know, 10 to 25 employees who are still, you know, taking pay cuts of their own, trying to make sure that their employees can continue uh, getting a paycheck uh, and recognizing that those are the folks who drive our economy, right? It's not the multi-billion dollar companies that are keeping our economy afloat. It's the small mom and pops who are making sure that workers are getting a direct paycheck that are keeping our economy afloat. And so- Well, so, so the then going down that, uh, that path, uh, I know that uh, Congresswoman Jayapal and, Representative, and Congressman Pokhan uh, had proposed the Paycheck Guarantee Act. I don't believe mm-hmm. it's going to make it into this stimulus bill. Uh, Steny Hoyer says it may make it into future ones. Um, would you support something like that? Would you support a guaranteed basic income? It seems to work in other countries. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of conversation uh, about guaranteed basic income. Uh, again, what I'm most interested in is making sure that families all across our district and all across our state have the capacity and the resources to put food on the table for their kids to you know, be able to pay their bills at the end of the month. Uh, to be able to access healthcare, you know, we have, I think, shown a bright light in this pandemic on the need for universal healthcare uh, and making sure that everyone, right, you know, my health uh, is now dependent on whether or not my neighbor is healthy. And it always has been, but I think this is an opportunity for us to really focus on investing in the infrastructure, uh, critical to making sure that we can all stay healthy, that we can all show up to work if we're, you know, if we're able to still work. And that for those of us that aren't able to still work, uh, that we have a clear path to economic recovery uh, that's inclusive, quite frankly, uh, and that puts workers uh, and, and families at the center of that economy. Well, since you bring up, there are a couple things that are related to that. You brought up health care, and I think it's it's fair to say that the pandemic has absolutely changed the conversation around health care. Um, 
I will ask you about your pathway to coverage. You said in a meeting with the 25th Legislative District that you advocate for what you call, quote, more than Medicare for all. I'm wondering what you mean by that. Yeah, thanks for that question, Stefan. So as I'll share, you know, I am somebody who has had several dust-ups with the healthcare system. Um, As I mentioned earlier, you know, I experienced homelessness in the last couple of years of high school. I went to college uh, on a lot of student loans and the state need grant. And unfortunately, this was all before Obamacare. So I had no health insurance. There was no health insurance offered to me as a college student on work study. And around the age of 21, uh, I was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, a breast tumor. Oh. And fortunately, it was benign, but as you can imagine, had to spend tens of thousands of dollars uh, to have it removed um, and found myself at 21, uh, you know, in collections debt, ended up having wage garnishments, all because I couldn't access uh, preventative health care. Um, that impacted my ability coming out of college and moving into my career field in my capacity to rent a house. It prevented my ability from being able to buy a car to get to and from work every day. Um, And, you know, I think that experience really informed for me at an early age why access to healthcare is so critical. Now, fast forward, I'm in, you know, my mid 30s. Uh, I have two difficult pregnancies. My son was 11 and a half pounds. My daughter was 10 and a half pounds. I developed gestational diabetes with both of them. Mm. And my father's family has a long history of diabetes. So uh, again, as you know, in communities of color, there are longstanding uh, health disparities. So, you know, we've talked about it. The research is there. So I go to the doctor. uh, I get tested uh, yearly because, you know, obviously we're trying to prevent me from developing full-blown diabetes. And my doctor says to me, you know, I want to put you on this prescription because I think it'll help uh, manage your, your pre-diabetes. And, uh, but I'll tell you, you know, your insurance company, I'm not sure that they're going to cover the cost of it. You see the way that insurance companies are designed. Uh, if I was diagnosed with two morbidities, right? Comorbidity, meaning two ways that I was going to die today. Uh, my insurance company would cover that prescription at $40 a month. But because I'm only diagnosed with one comorbidity and pre-diabetic, I would have to pay over $1,100 a month for that prescription. Now, to me, that's a very backwards way of thinking about how we take care of people. I agree. And and if I may just jump in, it sounds like you're kind of making the argument for single payer universal health care. Are you? Let me let me say why I think I am, you know, beyond Medicare for all, because uh, to your point. So my grandmother, who was 88 uh, this last year, uh, was on Medicare. She worked her entire life as a housekeeper for private families and then ended up working in a hospital uh, providing uh, housekeeping services Um, and, you know, did what she was supposed to do, worked her job, raised her kids, uh, saved for retirement. She got on Medicare and I'll tell you, so when people say Medicare for all, for me, I need to understand what that means because for my grandmother, what that meant was that she was still paying hundreds of dollars every month uh, out of pocket for supplemental insurance on Medicare Part D, Part C. She still had to pay uh, you know, up to $5,000 in um, co-pays in order to access the medical care that she needed. And I believe that uh, at the end of her life, she passed away this last September, that she got tired of fighting 
uh, for the health care that she needed to take care of herself um, and instead chose not to seek medical care because it was too expensive uh, and her retirement was you know, dwindling away. I believe that when we talk about Medicare for All as a path to universal health care, what I believe is that we've got to make sure that this system that, quite frankly, wasn't built for everyone, it wasn't built for me, it wasn't built by me, and it wasn't built for my inclusion, that at the end of the day, we're making sure that we're not replicating a system that's going to keep locking people out of access to health care. So are you so saying that Medicare for, for Medicare all would not go far enough? I, believe, I absolutely believe that we need to make sure that there is universal health care in the system and that everybody should be able to access health care um, without extensive you know, co-pays, without extensive um, costs that are going to bankrupt them. Because even though my grandmother had a savings uh, at in her senior years, um, she was living on a fixed income um, and had not necessarily planned for all of these you know, extensive surgeries and other things that uh, a cancer diagnosis is what have brought for her. And right. so, yeah, do I believe that our citizens, if, you know, deserve access to high quality health care? Absolutely. Do I believe that we've got to get to a universal system? Absolutely. But I believe that we've got to make sure that we're not perpetuating systems of inequity that exclude folks uh, because they can't afford, you know, a $500 copay. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the inadequacy that you're calling out with Medicare is the co-pays. And so are you then saying that you would like to propose a universal health care system that does not include co-pays? I think what I'm saying is that there are there are challenges with Medicare right now. We know that Medicare reimbursement rates for for um, healthcare providers are not on par. We know that folks are still having to pay exorbitant uh, prices out of pocket, particularly those you know elders who are living on a fixed income. What I'm saying is we've got to get to a system uh, of equity that ensures everyone in this country has access to universal healthcare. I want to circle back to our conversation earlier about the, the bailout package, because as we know, um, there are a staggering number of people who are not just out of work, but also because their insurance was tied to their employer, they're now uninsured. And I'm wondering what you would propose we do for those individuals. Would you support, say, uh, Representative Jayapal and uh, Representative Joe Kennedy's Medicare Crisis Program Act, which would guarantee health care access during the pandemic? Uh, I absolutely support uh, healthcare access in public pandemics. I don't think anybody should be paying for testing uh, around the coronavirus right now. I think, again, because it's in the public's interest, right? I think about, I've spent over a decade working on uh, military families and veterans issues. I've spent over a decade working on foreign policy and national security issues. Uh, you know, addressing a global pandemic is a national security imperative. I actually think that we should be having conversations about how we're using uh, our tax dollars, uh, you know, redirecting Department of Defense tax dollars to supporting our public health care workers, supporting workers on the front lines, making sure that folks don't have to pay uh, for testing uh, or protective equipment. Um, but I also believe that at the end of the day, uh, you know, we, everybody in this country deserves access to health care. Regardless of your situation, you deserve access to health care because every other human in our country is reliant on you being healthy. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely and how we not only solve the short-term challenge of healthcare affordability and access, but thinking about the long-term challenge of how we get to a universal healthcare system. I want to touch on climate change uh, as well, and the climate crisis rather, because I, I do believe that this is connected. This is all interconnected. I think the conversation is shifting on climate change, especially because of how the government was able to move just an unprecedented amount of capital to address the pandemic. The Green New Deal is a jobs guarantee program. Um, I, I will ask you generally where you stand on the Green New Deal. 
Yeah, uh, so I'll start I agree with the Green New Deal in concept and in theory, uh, but somebody who has worked in the halls of government as an elected official, state representative, uh, you know, the how we get this work done really matters. How we do this transition um, from a fossil fuel-based economy to an alternative energy economy really matters. And how we make sure that workers have a sense of security uh, and a feeling of protection while we do that matters. So I look forward, uh, you know, to taking that outline uh, and, and the, the concept of the Green New Deal and really fighting to make sure that we're building, uh, you know, an economy uh, with an alternative energy future uh, that combats climate change change and make sure that our workers feel secure in the transition that we're, we're making in that process. Well, I will just ask you bluntly, do you specifically support the aspects of the Green New Deal that are a jobs guarantee program? I think many people see this as a way forward through the unemployment that is stemming from the, the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when you look at um, the efforts that the, you know, that government implemented post the Great Depression, you saw, you know, kind of a conservation core concept pop up and folks investing in our national parks and uh, our public park system. I absolutely believe that there is a path forward uh, as an infrastructure investment program focused on alternative energy and climate uh, justice in this process. Uh, to help rebuild our economy with a more environmentally just lens. It's why I was proud to advocate in our state legislature for the first environmental justice legislation focused on how we're engaging communities of color, underserved communities, and rural communities. In and I look forward uh, to continuing to bring that progressive advocacy on climate justice uh, to Congress uh, and working with leaders there to advance uh, a climate justice uh, infrastructure package post uh, this pandemic to make sure that we are putting people back to work and that we're transitioning our economy in the process uh, so that we can have the skilled workers of the 22nd and 23rd century uh, focused on how we build a green economy. Because it is something that uh, Indivisible has pushed very hard for, I will ask you, do you or do you not support the Green New Deal as written? I support it in concept for sure. The details uh, of how you get it done are what really matter to me. And I look forward to continuing to roll up my sleeves to do the work to make sure that uh, how we ensure uh, it gets done so that it's equitable and just for everyone is uh, is critically important to me. But I look forward to helping advance uh, the, the concept and the theory of it. Okay. I just have a couple more questions. And one is just kind of a larger philosophical question that I, I want to put to you. When you announced your run, you said that part of the reason was that, quote, critical progressive priorities continue to fall victim to special interests in gridlock in D.C. I think when a lot of uh, my listeners hear the word gridlock, they know that it's Republicans that are causing the gridlock. I'm wondering, do you see it that way? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, again, having gotten elected in 2016, uh, you know, becoming the 51st Democrat to hold a House majority, trying to pass important progressive priorities, while the Senate Republicans uh, held the majority in that building, yeah, it's absolutely clear to see how um, gridlock can happen when folks uh, focus on their disagreements, when they focus on the things that they um that they don't uh, agree on. Uh, and but I mean, I think, I think there's what, I, what I'm getting at is I think there's a difference between gridlock and intransigence, right? I think an argument could be made that McConnell knows that even though the House has passed thousands of bills and he refuses to hear any of them, he realizes that most Americans don't know that and they just see it as both sides not getting anything done. Sure. But I think the same could be said of, of any political institution, 
that uh, when we focus on uh, how best to hold on to power and not how to put people first, then the system is broken. Uh, I think overall, my focus on going to D.C. is, again, understanding that it's an institution that wasn't built for me, by me, or with my inclusion in mind, that it's not just the work of pushing progressive priorities uh, and getting that work done, but it's also about how we tackle an institution that has a history of systematic uh, exclusion and systematic oppression. And we've got to make sure that we're doing the the both, that the and both of pushing our progressive priorities, making sure that we're holding uh, folks accountable to getting that work done and putting people back at the center of our government. It is highly likely, as you know, that a Democrat is going to win this seat um, and that whoever is going to have the seat is going to keep it for a long time. I would just ask you in closing, um, how you would use that pulpit to help Democrats back here at home, like, say, whoever the, the next Christine Reeves might be? Um, well, I think there's a lot of ways that that can happen. I think it's, you know, for me, um, there's a couple different things. I think one, uh, I uh, and have been since getting elected in 2016, been very focused on ensuring uh, that there is um, continued access points for women uh, and folks of color, for LGBTQ candidates to be able to engage in this process. Um, again, it's not necessarily a process that was built for us, by us, or with our inclusion in mind. And so making sure that I'm, you know, much like uh, folks did for me growing up, I want to be able to turn around and pay it forward by, uh, you know, uh, having a hand back and pulling folks up with me. I think, uh, too, again, you know, my primary focus in this effort is to put people back at the center of our government, back at the center of their economy, and make sure that we're you know, rebuilding this country and our economy with a socially, economically, and an environmentally just lens. And in order to do that, I think that's going to require, uh, you know, working with a lot of folks across this district uh, and a lot of leaders who don't necessarily see politics as their path, but are leaders just the same uh, to help engage in how we're going to fix our government, how we're going to fix our economy, uh, and how we're going to rebuild our communities with, with people and working families at the center of it. So uh, I look forward to doing that work. Again, I think I bring a very unique perspective and a unique lived experience that, you know, folks in our delegation, folks in Congress just don't have. And then lastly, I'll say this isn't a qualifier by any means. Uh, it doesn't make me any more or less qualified. But I do think that uh, being able to send the first African-American in our state's history and actually the Pacific Northwest uh, to Congress sends a pretty clear signal to folks like Donald Trump that we here in the Pacific Northwest value everyone's opinion, we value every voice at the table, uh, and we value all perspectives and uh, look forward to continuing to add to the dialogue in DC about how uh, we make sure that people and, and you know working families and kids are at the center of how we rebuild this uh, effort. As I said at the top of our discussion, it's got to be just enormously challenging running a campaign during a pandemic. So uh, what can people do to help? Where can they go? How can people get involved with your campaign? Oh, that's a great thing. And that's so nice of you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I mean, I, I really, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to what you must be going through right now. It's got to be just very difficult because you can't do, you know, you can't do town halls. You can't go to regular campaign events. You can't canvas. So, yeah. So we yeah, want to send well, people your I, way if they're interested. <laughs> When we, uh, you know, my husband and I made the decision that running for Congress was the best way that I could serve my neighbors, uh, we it was definitely made under very different circumstances. You know, we're now in a situation where, uh, you know, I uh, am 
you know, my last day at my job will be the end of this month. Uh, my husband may, de depending on what the airlines do, may get furloughed uh, here in a couple months. Um, you know, so yes, we, you know, we're fighting really hard both as a family, but I think just in the recognition that we aren't alone. There are a lot of families going through this, you know, and I talked uh, to voters every day, you know, all day, five days a week, and there are a lot of folks hurting out there. Um, so what I tell folks is there's a lot of different ways to engage in how we take back our government, um, how we fight to make sure that everyone has a voice at the table. Uh, if folks have extra time uh, and capacity, we uh, are happy to um, sign volunteers up to help us connect with our neighbors. We would love to talk to folks about, you know, whether or not they could find five to 10 of their friends that would do a Zoom meeting with me or a phone call with me uh, just to get to know me and uh, talk more about what matters most to them and their families. We have obviously uh, contribution links on my website at christinereeves.com, and that's Christine with a K. Uh, we, you know, if folks can pitch in $5, you know, $10 to take back the 10th, we would love uh, their support. Um, but, you know, we are most focused, again, on how we get the opportunity to listen and learn from our neighbors about what matters most to them and how we take that voice and that fight to D.C. to make sure that they're represented uh, in the work that we're doing. And, and again, I think, uh, you know, my lived experience and my background, uh, my professional experience as an economic developer, um, and again, as the only candidate in this race who's got legislatively elected and congressional staffing experience, I think uniquely positions me to hit the ground running and to do the work necessary to advance these really important progressive priorities. Because quite frankly, uh, I am the result of strategic investments by you know previous Democrats and progressives who thought that uh, a kid like me deserved a fair shot uh, at educational and economic opportunity. And I wanna make sure that uh, all of our kids today and our families today have that same fair shot. And I think advancing progressive and democratic priorities is the best way to get that done. And so uh, look forward to, you know, working to earn folks support, but more importantly, working to earn their vote uh, to send a working mom to Washington, D.C. to fight for working families. Christine Reeves, thank you so much. Thank you, Stefan. I really appreciate that you're doing this and appreciate the opportunity to connect. Uh, and, uh, you know, look forward to engaging with your listeners in any way that meets uh, their current capacity uh, to make sure that we're fighting for everyone in our communities. Excellent. Christine Reeves is running for Congress in the 10th Congressional District. And that is it for today's show. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. My thanks to Kat Pipkin for her help with this. Special thanks, as always, to Lori Colwell. And especially my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.